0: Hello and welcome to another episode of EKU Online's ECAST series. EKU Online's mission is to change lives by providing access to affordable and high quality degree programs in meaningful disciplines that positively impact our society. We thank you for joining us. Today, our guest is Dr. Caroline Reed, professor of social work and coordinator of the online bachelor's in social work program at Eastern Kentucky University. She's been teaching at EKU for 15 years, and her research interests include social, economic, and environmental justice, addictions, and mental health. Welcome, Dr. Reed, and thank you so much for your time today. We sincerely appreciate it. Thanks so much
1: Steve. Happy to be here. Happy to tell you a little bit about my work here at
0: EKU and it's it's good to chat with you. Well let's jump right in then. First off just a uh, somewhat of a personal question but I understand you're from Northern Ireland originally and if you don't mind would you just tell us a little bit about how you ended up at Richmond and EKU? Sure be happy
1: to. Um, I grew up in Northern Ireland. Uh, My family, they're all actually still there, Um, and I left home at the age of 17 to explore the world. Um, I ended up living in Israel for a year, Uh, and whilst there I met a group of students uh, from Berea College, and they were doing a service project there. So I learned all about Berea College, and actually there was an older couple there from Mount Vernon in Israel, who took me under their wing and they believed in me and they encouraged me to apply to Berea College. So at that time, I wasn't sure if I was smart enough to go to college, but uh, they encouraged me and supported me and I ended up, I left Israel, went back to Northern Ireland to try to find a job so that I could earn money to make my way over here to the United States. But when I got back to Northern Ireland, the unemployment was pretty high at that time, it was about six hovering around 17 percent and my father he worked for a huge tool company <clears throat> that's an engineering company and they were sending him to south africa to help set up a plant there uh focused on drill bits for mining and so i begged him to let me tag along so i could find work there and he agreed and so i ended up living there for about two years in johannesburg south africa and I worked in the insurance company saving money all the while trying to make my way over to the United States. Um, so eventually I came over, uh, I was accepted into Berea College and I studied psychology. And at that time, I thought my goal was to become a psychologist. But when I graduated with my psychology degree, I began working at a local community health mental health center. And I encountered social workers for the first time. And that's where I began to realize that this was a better fit for my career goals. Um, Social work is really unique in that we have a dual focus. We're concerned with the problems that individuals encounter, but we go beyond that. We care about larger social issues that sort of impinge on individuals and cause some of the problems that individuals are experiencing and social work, we call that a micro macro focus. So I discovered social work was the best field for me because instead of sort of just putting band-aids on the immediate situation and not looking at the bigger picture, we're just sort of spinning our wheels and social workers have to have that dual focus of addressing the bigger problems in society as, as well as attending to those immediate uh, problems that folks are experiencing.
0: So you ended up at Eastern through the social work program?
1: Yes, I uh, started my career in community mental health and then I actually ended up working at the University of Kentucky uh, and I got the teaching bug while I was there. I Had several research projects and and someone in the College of Social Work asked me, would it be interesting teaching a class? And so I did. And immediately I thought, oh, my goodness, I love being a part of young people's development educationally. And so uh, I realized I've got to go back to school and get uh, that Ph.D. so I can uh, teach full time. And so I came here in 2006 and have loved it ever since.
0: Well, it's a, it's a fine institution and um, EKU is very fortunate to have you on board.
1: Well, it, it is a really special place. I remember yeah. my day on campus, I have no sense of direction. I parked somewhere far away from my building and I asked the lady, do you know how I can get to the Keith building? And she took the time to actually walk me to the building. And I, I knew from day one, this is gonna be a great place to work.
0: <laughs> and it is it is well Dr. Reed please tell us a little bit about the social work programs here <clears throat> at EKU how many sure positions do we have and what specific degree programs or certificates are offered online
1: sure we um have both a face-to-face program and a fully yeah. online BSW program and actually faculty teach in both the BSW and the MSW programs Um, That's really important for consistency. Uh, We also have a fully online MSW program, and that offers a variety of certificates that are completed in conjunction with the MSW degree. And that's a really unique component of the MSW Master's in Social Work program because it really offers the student the ability to zero in on a particular area. And The great thing about getting a BSW is that if you want to get your master's at our program or another uh, master's program throughout the United States, if you have a BSW, you have advanced standing and that means that you can complete your master's in one year. There's certain caveats, you have to have a certain GPA and things like that, but uh, we offer the generalist program in the undergraduate. You are provided with knowledge, values, and skills to practice at the generalist level. In other words, you can practice with a variety of populations, uh, but the masters uh, you know, afford you that ability to just focus in zero in on particular areas. And the certificates we offer are currently in addictions, mental health, leadership, management, leadership, management, and social advocacy and justice. And we have about five full-time faculty in the BSW program, two in the MSW program, but we are interviewing right now um, and hopefully we will uh, add three or four new people to our faculty.
0: Wow, that's amazing. That's, I didn't realize it was growing that quickly.
1: Mm-hmm. We are growing, uh, almost busting at the seams, (laughs) but uh, the the great thing about it is we need social workers, so uh, it's good that we have the opportunity to assist in the process of training young people, educating them to be the best social workers they can possibly be.
0: Yeah, that, that segues perfectly into the question I have for you now, and it's my understanding that we do face a shortage of social workers in the future. And as you counsel and advise students, what advice do you give them about the field of social work? I mean, what skills and tools do you prepare them for? And what kind of things should they bring to the table themselves?
1: Yeah, great question. I always tell students, you know, your goal is to work yourself out of a job where where people don't need us anymore. Uh, But the reality is I think social workers will always be needed as long as the problems that we have in society are present. You know, in an ideal world, if social justice were present, we wouldn't need social workers. But the sad reality is we need social workers probably more than ever. And uh, this is a really great field to get involved in if you want to make a difference in the lives of others. It's hard work, and we also call it heart work. we need people who want to make a difference in the lives of others, who care uh, about people, who care about people's well being. And social workers can really make a difference. They can affect powerful change, not only with individuals, but also with society. You know, we talked about that dual focus. One of the things uh, that we need to focus on are those larger social structures and issues that cause problems like racism, poverty, uh, unemployment, all of those things affect individuals. And so we have opportunities to be involved in both working to better society and to better individuals' lives. And you will find social workers employed in just about every area. You know, they can be case managers, they can work in hospice, family resource centers, Child care, medical social work, clinical social work, so, so many areas. And so I think uh, students need to come to us with that desire to help people. They need to care about social justice issues and care about human beings. But by itself, that's not enough. You can have a lot of compassion, a lot of love in your heart for other people, but you could actually be dangerous and helping people because you don't have the knowledge or the values or the skills to be competent in helping. And so that's the part that we offer. We teach you, we can't teach you how to care for people and we can't teach you how to really have compassion but we can teach you the knowledge, values and skills to be successful in social work.
0: Very good. I, I'm gonna shift gears here just a little bit, Dr. Reed. You're known, or you have a reputation of being an extremely good and solid online instructor. Someone who spends a lot of time in the creation and teaching of your courses. What are some aspects of the online experience that you find particularly effective for students? I mean, is, is there a certain approach you use to heighten and incite student engagement? Well, thank you for that compliment. Um, I really work hard at
1: trying to establish a relationship with my students. And I do that uh, in my face-to-face classes, which is a lot easier to do, but I work really hard at trying to get my, to know my students online. Um, I genuinely care about their success in my course, but I need to let them know that I care about them. And so, Some of the things I do is like from the very first time they introduce themselves online or in person, I try to find some common ground or some interests uh, that we have in common and I comment on that. And I let them know that I'm interested in them. Perhaps they have a dog and i let them know I just got a puppy (laughs) or something like that. Um, I try to reach out to every single student individually and comment on their introductions and then around Week three, I send an email to every single student individually and I ask them, how are you doing in the course? Um, I see that you're posting to discussion board doing well, um, keep that up. Is there anything I can do to help you be more successful? And. Every time I do this in my classes, I hear back from probably 40 to 50%, I wish it were 100, but I hear back from about 40 to 50% of them um, commenting that, thank you so much for reaching out. You're the first person who's done that. And that surprised me because I always thought everybody does that. but. Apparently So so if anyone's listening and and you don't reach out to your students individual, please do. I highly recommend it. Just a quick email. I mean, it means so much to students. And of course, it also uh, generates questions from students. You know, if they were perhaps reluctant to ask a question, this opens the door. Uh, So I think reaching out to students goes a really long way in forging a relationship with students. And it gives them uh, an opportunity to just get back with you and ask questions. The other thing that I do, and I'm quite religious about this, is I grade all of my assignments within 48 hours of the student's submission. And I hold this expectation to all of my wonderful facilitators. And they are really good about that. And I think students really appreciate this detailed feedback. Um, And I think their work improves as a result of it. I don't think this is something extra that I should be doing. It does take time, uh, but I think uh, we should all be doing this to to just help forge that relationship with students. And uh, it, it does take time, but I think it pays off in the long run and it makes a difference for students.
0: Very good. I'd like to move into the world of social work a, a little bit and, and talk to you about some of the issues there. Um, social work fascinates me personally because it's the content and the context in which, in which we live. And I noticed that much of your teaching load is comprised of what some would call difficult topics, such as addictions or crisis intervention on mm-hmm. drug use. And clearly, drug use and abuse is a rampant problem in our society today. And unfortunately, Kentucky has not escaped that. The latest figures I found were from 2018, and I'm sure there's more current ones. But in 2018, we lost nearly a thousand people to opioid overdose alone. Dr. Reed, how do we as a culture and as a society Begin to deal with a problem of this magnitude?
1: Wow, that's a big, powerful question and an important question. Um, the opioid epidemic specifically refers to the growing number of deaths and hospitalizations from opioids, uh, including prescriptions and illicit drugs. And so, in recent years, death rates from these drugs have just ramped up to over 40,000 a year. Um, I think I read one statistic of about 115 uh, deaths a day across the, or overdoses per day across the United States. Um, So it is a a huge problem. And to address this massive problem, I think we need to look at this situation holistically. Uh, Treatment needs to be available and accessible. There is actually a lot of red tape Uh, that clients have to go through from the minute they come forward and ask for help. And I think one of the things we need to do is remove those bureaucratic barriers to treatment. Um, One of the things we also need to do is reduce the stigma that is associated with substance use. Um, Clients often feel ashamed for their substance use disorder and that makes them reluctant to ask for help. So we need to educate and help reduce that stigma. We need to um, educate physicians and other treatment providers, including social workers on the ability to assess and then to treat substance use disorder. Um, We have a better handle today on the availability of prescription drugs than we had before. And so we're not prescribing opioids to the extent that that we were in the 90s. Uh, I don't know if you know about CASPER, it's our Kentucky's uh, drug monitoring, prescription drug monitoring program. And what that means is it disables users from doctor hopping and it holds physicians accountable uh, for the amount and the number of opioids prescribed. And so we've tightened this up a bit, but that's only a small piece of the puzzle, I think. We need to look at the issue holistically and everyone needs to be involved across the community. I used to work with a fellow, Dr. Gil Friedel, at the University of Kentucky and he used to say that if the problems are in the community, the solutions are in the community. Um, some of the ways that we have tried to uh, deal with this problem is that we lock people up and put them in jail and we can't arrest our way out of the problem. We've tried that, we've locked people up who've sold drugs, and we've locked people up who've used drugs, but the war on drugs, it's not working. Putting people in jail doesn't take care of the problem. And on that note, prisons need to focus more on rehabilitation rather than punishment. Um, And we've tried to also treat our way out of addiction, and that is a part of it. Uh, we have to have more accessible treatment, especially in poverty stricken areas. And we've tried to educate our way out of it and we need to do that too. And that is a part of it as well. We've got to do all of these things at the same time across the board and in every community, get everyone involved. Um, You know, the public needs to be involved because the public can put pressure uh, an influence on judges, prosecutors, law enforcement, medical community, education system, all of these entities are needed to sit around the table and address uh, the problems together. One of the things I used to be heavily involved in was in the area of prevention and not a lot of people talk about prevention and I think that's a travesty because we need to think about prevention. Um, There's not a lot of effort on preventing problems before they happen. And I think one of the things that we need to do to address the opioid problem is to prevent it in the first place. And that happens through education, through awareness, um, and by bringing key folks in the community to help spread uh, spread the epidemic. Um, Let me tell you a little story I heard probably 20 years ago when I was working on my master's program and I think it perfectly illustrates the fundamentals of prevention uh, and why it's important. There was a guy who was fishing down by the river and he noticed that someone was drowning and so he pulled them out and attempted to resuscitate them. And shortly afterwards he noticed another person was in the river and he saved them too. And then he noticed another and another and another. And soon he was completely exhausted and realized he would not be able to save all of the drowning people. So he had a good idea. He went further upstream to find out why are all these people falling into the river? And of course, upon arriving upstream, he discovered a broken bridge was causing all of those people to fall into the river and end up drowning where he had been fishing. So obviously uh, fixing that bridge at the top to stop them falling in uh, was where the work had to be done. And so social workers, I believe need to be involved in working upstream, fixing the bridge and stop people drowning from the first in the first place. Um, it seems that in the field of social work, we are doing that. We're spending a lot of time fishing people out who've started to drown. But if we are attending to that dual focus, working with individuals and society, we should be spending equal time. And that means working also in prevention. Um, One of the problems with that though is there's not a lot of resources focused or devoted to prevention, but it really saves us money in the long run if we invest in this way. I think it was Benjamin Franklin that once said, ounce of prevention is a pound of cure. So we need to put our resources uh, into preventing problems before we see them happening.
0: I have, that was a beautiful illustration because it really brings home um, the problem, both as as personal problems, but also as a lot larger societal issue. So right that. Well, I'd like to ask you, because really in our backyard of Eastern Kentucky University, so to speak, we have an opioid problem and Dr. Brian Barnett, an MD In a recent article in the Journal of the American Medical Association referred to the opioid abusers in eastern Kentucky as the quote-unquote lost generation. What do you think he means by that phrase and really is there more we could and should be doing as a society to reach those people in eastern Kentucky?
1: Great question. I, I haven't actually read that article but I imagine that he means because of the opioid abuse in the region. And in this region, we it has been historically been beset by poverty, unemployment, mental health problems. And now with the opioid epidemic, we have many children growing up without parents. And that poses a, a threat to the social and economic prosperity of Appalachia. Um, The the opioid epidemic is not just a public health and public safety issue, it's an economic issue. It drains the region's resources, uh, human and financial. It ruins Appalachian families and communities. Um, Today, we have more grandparents raising their grandchildren than ever before, largely fueled by the opioid crisis. Um, We've lost many parents to this crisis. And guess what? Grandparents are left to pick up the pieces. Uh, Many of these grandparents are doing the very best they can. But here they are in their golden years, supposedly time to slow down and relax. But here they are raising another family. And many of them are struggling financially uh, with basic things, um, including things like homework. Have you seen how we do adding and subtracting these days i i can't imagine how difficult this must be for grandparents who are raising grandchildren likely didn't grow up in a tech savvy world and they're having to learn a, a whole lot of new skills but you know historical social and economic injustices in Appalachia persist and have worsened because of the opioid epidemic and really unless we address these problems we we are facing a lost generation of kids growing up in this, this crisis. So I think that's probably what he means by
0: that. Fascinating, it's, um, it's very sad too. It is. One of the courses you teach Dr. Reed is called Crisis Intervention. Um, would you please tell our listeners a little bit about this course? And, and my question is, are we talking about alcohol and drug abuse? or are we also dealing with mental health concerns when we talk about crisis intervention?
1: Yes, happy to tell you about this course. It is beyond a separate course focused on addictions, but this course is a discrete course that's focused on mental health first aid, if you call it that. It's all about uh, crisis management and helping a client navigate a crisis situation when their personal uh, resources and mental health has taken a turn for the worse. And so, um, one of the very first things that we do in this course is figure out what is a crisis. I think uh, people use the term very loosely and say, Oh, I'm having a crisis right now, when really they may be facing a difficult but not unsurmountable situation. And the situation may be temporarily inconvenient, but it's probably not a crisis. And so, one of the things we do first off is just help students understand what is a, a crisis. And we talk about the sort of trilogy definition of a crisis and that includes um, the precipitating event, what happened, um, the perception of that event from the client, you know, the subjective distress that comes from the perception of this event and then the failure to cope. So let me give you an example. You and I could be involved in a fatal car accident and we both survive, uh, but obviously uh, someone dies. Uh, That would be the precipitating event. So how do you perceive that event? For me, I may be absolutely devastated. I feel that it was my fault. I struggle with guilt and just can't seem to move beyond it. You, on the other hand, experienced the exact same situation, but you viewed that as purely an accident. It wasn't anybody's fault. You're a little shaken, but within a few days, you accept that this was an unfortunate situation and and you move on. So your perception of that event was really, really different to mine. And then number three is the failure to cope. For me, I can't sleep. I cannot work. uh, I have got flashbacks going on. My usual coping skills are just simply not functioning. And somehow I think maybe I could have prevented this uh, situation. So I can't even go to work and face my colleagues and friends. And, And so I'm really meeting the definition of a crisis. And so that is just to illustrate what a crisis would look like. And so of course, once students are able to recognize a crisis, they're then in a position to begin thinking about how can they help someone through this crisis by helping to change their perception, helping uh, to decrease their stress, and then hopefully trying to increase uh, their their functioning. And so this this course is really focused on the assessment skills needed, uh, the interpersonal skills and the knowledge of how to help someone in in a crisis. It's a great course and students leave often feeling really empowered and better equipped to handle people uh, facing a crisis.
0: It really fascinates me because I I looked at a statistic not long ago from Johns Hopkins University and it reports that approximately 26% of the US population, 18 years or older, suffer from some form of diagnosable mental illness. I mean that's one out of every four adults. So my question is, what can social workers do on the front lines to help combat this terrible problem? I mean that that is just a, a staggering statistic. It is, uh, I and mean, then some studies, will say one in five, one in
1: six, and it really sort of depends on the age group. Your figure for one in four that probably refers to about the eighteen to twenty-five your old age group, and that indeed is very alarming. But regardless, we have a lot of folks um, who are struggling with mental illness and you're right, social workers and other mental health professionals are often the first professionals that folks come into contact with when they experience um, mental health issues. Um, It's the folks who are not coming forward that actually frighten me the most because often they are the ones who end up committing suicide. Um, As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of stigma around the issue of mental health and many people do not reach out for a number of reasons. Sometimes uh, folks feel that they'll be judged for not picking themselves up by the bootstraps and getting on with that or they might feel that no one understands and these are the the folks I think are most vulnerable. Um, These are the people who have a diagnosable mental illness, but have not been diagnosed and therefore not offered help. And so we need to find those people before it's too late. Um, according to uh, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, um, you know, 4.8 of all adults have thoughts of suicide. And that number, that percentage increases 118 eight for young adults aged 18 to 25, uh, 18.8 for high school students. And think about uh, minority populations as well, 48.6 of uh, lesbian, gay and bisexual high school students contemplate suicide. So once again, education and prevention is key. We can work collectively to reduce the stigma of mental health problems. Um, you know, Stigma causes people to feel ashamed for something that's totally out of their control. It prevents them from seeking help. So as social workers on the front lines, we need to make sure that we are accessible, we're available, we are there to help our clients. And if we can get people in to see us early on when they begin to experience uh, some mental health problems and issues, we have a better chance of helping clients manage these issues before they worsen. Um, and for many, there are me, uh, many uh, mental health illnesses that we can address uh, with medication, uh, with therapy and we can prevent uh, them totally derailing and probably ending up you know, in a psychiatric ward in the hospital. So we need to continue being available, being accessible and helping to reduce the stigma.
0: Do you, do you think the stigma is reducing any across the years, or is it still about the same as it as it's always been? Um, you know, I think it has
1: uh, it has gone down. I think you know, even watching television shows, uh, you see people opening up more about mental health issues, um, even physical health issues, you can sort of see these topics being interwoven into television shows. And I think that is powerful, that sends a message that, hey, this is normal. It is okay. Um, I I was listening to a show the other night, and I thought it was somewhat random, but they were inserted information into that show uh, that was telling people to be sure that you Uh, go to be checked for colon cancer. And, you know, I think 20 years ago, you would never have heard of someone doing that on a popular television show. But it was clear to me that it was intentional that they were doing that to encourage people to
0: think about cancer screening. Well, Dr. Reed, in, in your introduction, we mentioned your research interests. If you would, would you please tell our listeners a little bit more about your specific interests and where you're going with that?
1: Sure, Um, my interest uh, in research has been sort of all over the board and quite varied. Um, I began my academic journey at the University of Kentucky where I worked at the Center on Drug and Alcohol Research. And as you can imagine, uh, research was at the heart of everything we did. I had a couple of research projects there, and they were actually focused on trying to get young women interested in drug abuse science. And all of these young women actually came from southeastern Kentucky. Um, And so we uh, studied and examined their thoughts, their attitudes, how their knowledge increased in science over a period of several years, and we we published several papers uh, from that work. Most recently, um, actually, and just this week, Jennifer Weiss, uh, Dr. Jennifer Weiss, the associate provost, and I, uh, who are co-editors on a special issue in the Journal of Appalachian Studies focused on economic um, and social justice in Appalachia, we're hosting a Zoom event this Friday with the authors. and So that's been my most recent uh, research project. It has spanned over 10 years where we had a five-year lecture series and we funded several smaller student-faculty research projects and it culminated in this special issue in the Journal of Appalachian Studies. So I'm really excited about that and excited to talk with the authors this week on it.
0: Very good. Now, I suspect this next question will be um, uh, one that may be difficult to answer I, my suspicion is you don't have a lot of spare time, Dr. Reed. It sounds like you're a very busy person, but if you would, would you share with our listeners a little bit about your personal interests, uh, the kinds of things that you you enjoy and like to do? Sure. Um, I actually love photography
1: and um, I, I'm, a, I'm very much an amateur, but I love taking pictures of nature, flowers and things like that. Um, so I, I go out, take pictures of the sunset, I really enjoy that. Um, from the beginning of when the epidemic started, we've been sort of stuck inside. Uh, I started painting uh, kindness rocks. And actually uh, we distributed about 200 of them in my neighborhood around here. And I, I, it was sort of a clandestine operation where I did it at nighttime, so I didn't want anyone to know but people had those little ring cam- cameras on their doorbells. And so I was found out. Um, then people started asking me to paint these little rocks for them. Uh, and so I've been doing that. And funnily enough, uh, then a, a lady asked me to do one of her dogs. And I didn't think I could do that because I was just doing little designs and things like that. But I tried and I was surprised myself, I could actually uh, do it. And so I've been actually painting dog portraits on a rock. Actually, I have one here I did of a fox. I don't know if you can see that.
0: Can you see that? Yes, yes.
1: So uh, I do that for fun. And I most recently, as in two days ago, got a new puppy. Uh, (laughs) She is a, uh, she's classified as a small standard. Uh, The name is a Moyen poodle or a Klein. They're not recognized here in the United States, but they're recognized in Europe. It's a fourth size of a poodle. And so I'm very excited to have her. Uh, I love puppies and love dogs. So it's good to have her.
0: (laughs) Well, very good. Well, we're trying to wrap up here, Dr. Reed. And I, I would just like to ask you, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Something that I didn't cover or something else that you'd like to tell our students or? If you are interested in social work, please reach out to
1: us. We, we would love to chat with you. Uh, we'd love to explore with you if this would be a good fit for you. I think it's a fantastic career. I've been so happy to be a social worker and now an educator. And I'm excited to share what I have learned over the years with a new generation of students. And uh, so it's just a pleasure to be in this field and great talking with you today. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Reed. It it has been a genuine pleasure speaking with you and getting to know you a little bit better and and discussing with you some really key societal problems that we need to be aware of and and need to deal with. Uh, We thank you for your time and your work and your commitment to social work programs here at Eastern Kentucky University. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Steve.